So what I would like to see is something that has been adopted in other countries, uh, Italy in particular, where you can run uh, a radio station unlicensed if it's below a certain amount of power and only on areas where there may be fallow spectrum. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel, and today I have a special co-host. He's a longtime friend of mine and a friend of Radio Survivor, Professor John Anderson, connecting to us via Skype all the way from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for joining us, John. It is so nice to be back. Yes. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had you on. And so you are a uh, you're a professor of journalism, and you mm-hmm. are a long-time FCC watcher. And one of the things that you've kept tabs on now for 20-plus years is unlicensed radio, pirate radio, some people call it, or have been, has been called micropower radio, free radio. And um, – You've, you've been paying attention longer than anyone that I know or know of, both not only just sort of the movement and the stations, but how the FCC proceeds and acts uh, against these stations. So we're going to talk a little bit about that because as we've talked in the past on the show, you know, free radio is often kind of uh, an escape valve. It's, 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 a la- it's a medium which is used by uh, many communities uh, who have no representation on on the on the airwaves and yet uh communities that maybe has easy access to radio not easy access to other forms of communication do not use internet as much maybe as sort of your average kind of uh, educated middle class white person does um so uh you know that that's at least part of it and that's something that you've explained to us in the past and so it is is really you know a form of community media in many ways even if it's not uh strictly permitted or licensed in the United States. And we'll also catch up a little bit more with some other things uh going on at at the FCC. But to sort of start us out, you know, um this year uh it seems like the FCC once again is uh, saying that uh, pursuing unlicensed broadcasters is a priority. So uh, give us some some context. What's going on? Well, Paul, uh, this is a process that's been in play for a few years now, and it was something that the former FCC Democratic controlled under Chairman Tom Wheeler actually struggled with. Um, there's just simply been a proliferation of unlicensed stations uh, in the last two decades uh, to such an extent that there is no meaningful mechanism by which the Federal Communications Commission, which is responsible for enforcing broadcasters to have a license, can actually begin to keep up with it. And, you know, the demographics of who are involved, the constituencies of who are involved over the last 20 years have changed. Back in the 90s, it was a much more politicized thing where people were taking to the air you know, it's kind of an act of electronic civil disobedience in order to pressure the FCC to to put pressure on their enforcement protocols and resources to open up the airwaves to allow for more, uh, you know, public community style broadcasting. And of course, that was something that led to policy change uh, through the promulgation of the LPFM radio service. Since then, um, there has been continued growth in unlicensed broadcasting, but it's not by people or communities that are necessarily engaged or even very aware of communications policy and how the FCC does its stuff. Uh, This is specifically immigrant communities. And of the various immigrant communities that have been involved in pirate radio in the last, you know, since 2000-ish, you find a lot of Latino 
uh, stations and Latino is a broad term, but you know, Ecuadorians are not the same as Mexicans who are not the same as Spaniards, you know? So you have a lot of, uh, diversity among, a, a growing population within the United States that is not served or underserved by legitimate broadcasting. And then you also have, uh, people from Caribbean countries, uh, specifically Haiti, where radio has always been, a cultural touchstone. I mean, they've gone through upheavals, natural disasters, and coups. And in many of those uh, circumstances, radio has been the lifeline by which people actually uh, not only inform themselves about what's taking place in their communities, but also to talk to each other. A lot of these folks have come to America, you know, since 2000 or before, and they have brought those practices with them. And so you've seen a proliferation of unlicensed stations, primarily in major markets and three of them specifically, uh, the New York, New Jersey, metro area, Florida, uh, Miami, and other places, and then uh, Massachusetts, primarily Boston and uh, surrounding communities. And the FCC has acknowledged this. It, it understands that this is taking place. But in the early 2010s, um, the FCC also was coming to terms with the fact that because austerity exists in all of our governmental structures, they simply do not have the resources to deal with this properly. So under the Democratic chairman, Tom Wheeler, the FCC actually uh, reduced its footprint of enforcement offices and agents around the country. And that was something that made licensed broadcasters very, very angry because they look at pirates as some sort of cancerous infestation of airwaves that they have total ownership and control over. And since the early 2010s, the broadcast industry has basically been conducting a campaign of research and propaganda to demonize unlicensed broadcasters and through Congress uh, to put pressure on the Federal Communications Commission to do something about it. Wheeler wasn't going to bite um, he stuck to his guns as far as saying these are the practical limitations of what we can do as a regulator. But now we have uh, Trump controlled FCC and the new chairman is Ajit Pai and his uh, number two guy is uh, Michael Riley. Uh, and Michael Riley in specifically has made unlicensed broadcasting kind of his hobby horse. So he goes around to all the industry conferences and makes uh, strange pronouncements about how dangerous pirate stations can be. Uh, that'll fry your brain. It'll take advertising revenue away from licensed stations, which will crater that aspect of our communications economy. It's just crazy, crazy stuff. But they've basically adopted a mentality of we need to make this more of an enforcement priority. So long story short, yes, there has been an uptick over the last year or so in the amount of enforcement activity that the FCC is uh, conducting in the field. The kicker is, is that enforcement activity is still relatively meaningless. It's uh, administrative. It involves visiting stations and asking some questions and following up with a certified warning letter. And uh, that's never worked. It's not working now. Um, and they've been looking to fine uh, unlicensed broadcasters, 10, 15, 20,000. They actually uh, knocked some pirates in South Florida recently with a $144,300 fine. Wow. Is that a record? Uh, that's a record for a single unlicensed broadcasting uh, a forfeiture. It's not a forfeiture yet. They've they've said we're going to fine you, and this is the number, but it's another administrative process before the actual forfeiture notice comes out with the thing that says, pay this money to a P.O. box in Chicago. But um, 
the interesting thing of looking at these cases is, you know, the trade press, the radio industry trade press is looking at all of this as like, they've turned over a new leaf. We've got an FCC chairman that really cares about radio and he's taking this pirate thing seriously. But all he's really doing is speeding up the administrative enforcement protocols that is going on right now. I mean, in this $144,000 case, if you actually go back through the data and I, you know, this is my 20th year. Uh, basically building a database of FCC enforcement actions against unlicensed broadcasting. So I can go back and look, have these people actually been, you know, uh, warned, visited, fined, raided uh, in the past. And guess what? In this case in South Florida, all of the above, uh, these people have been warned. They have been fined. Uh, they have been raided. Their equipment has been seized. One of them was you know, charged under Florida's anti-pirate radio state law over the last decade, and nothing has happened. So, so, so wait, that- let, me, let me wrap my head around this, right? Because I think for yeah. a lot of folks, like, they hear you know, of pirate radio, and they think you know, maybe they've seen the film uh, with Christian Slater, right? Pump up the volume, Pump up the volume. pirate radio with uh- – Oh, Philip Seymour, Seymour Hoffman. Hoffman, right? Yeah. And so they, yeah. they, they imagine, right? You know, uh, the guy running, you know, driving around the jeep with with the FCC vans ch- chasing him, right, or yeah. or you know, someone out offshore with with you know the the police boats coming up on them, right? Yeah. And, and you hear about this, right? And you say, well, how is it that you know why can't they go in and, and you know and, and treat them like like drug dealers or even treat them like jaywalkers, right? Yeah, right. And, and write a ticket and, and hand it over and, 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 and sign them up for their day in court. How is it that, that these particular uh, unlicensed broadcasters in Florida can have gone through all of this and are still broadcasting and now get this, you know, over a hundred thousand dollar fine. How is, how has it happened? How does it get to this point where this is still going on? The FCC's never in the entire history of the agency from 1934, even before with the Federal Radio Commission in 1927 and the Department of Commerce before that. It's always been a requirement in the United States that broadcasters have a license. But there is there has never been the resources and personnel and protocols devoted to actually enforcing that license. So pirate radio is something that is as native to the United States radio spectrum as radio itself. Um, And also, if you think about what pirate radio is, it's a fairly victimless crime, right? It actually adds something uh, to the communications milieu that you have. Yes, some pirates can interfere uh, with stations nearby on the dial, and that's not an optimal situation, but it's not fuzzing these stations out with massive amounts of interference. Yes, uh, there have been cases in the past where pirates uh, have broadcast spurious emissions. Their transmitters are kind of wonky, and they put out a little energy on other adjacent bands to like the FM dial. And that can be potentially dangerous, uh, but it has never been so. So historically speaking, regulators have looked at the notion of, well, if you're going to broadcast, you need a license. But they've never actually concretized the power <laughs> to enforce the license requirement. And when uh, the enforcement process takes place, like I said, this isn't cops doing it. These are FCC agents. They're they're trained engineers, you know, uh, with button down shirts and uh, dockers on. 
And they go out in fancy vehicles filled with a lot of equipment uh, that allows them to triangulate and find the location of these stations. And then they basically fill out forms. Okay, this is where the station's at. This is the frequency it's on. This is who's uh, listening. Um, This is how powerful it is. And then they begin the process of enforcement, which has been for the for the large part with a couple of, you know, isolated instances, purely administrative. Uh, Here's a warning letter. Here's a threat of a fine. Here's a document saying you need to pay us. But there's no mechanism that the FCC has to actually collect that stuff. So if I get fined for unlicensed broadcasting and yeah. and I get this letter in the mail saying you owe us $15,000, what happens if I don't pay it? What happens if uh, I just ignore it? Yeah. I take, take the letter. I stick it in the shredder. Uh, I behave as if I didn't get it, right? The same thing. You get some some bill you don't think you should have to pay. Pretty much nothing. Um, <laughs> You know, if you ignore the fine and, you know, because this is a crime at a federal level, so to speak, uh, there's a statute of limitations attached to it. So typically once someone is fined, uh, the FCC has about five years to collect on that fine. And the last time the FCC actually studied its ability to collect on all forfeitures, that's just not against, you know, pirate radio broadcasters, but people that slam and cram you on phone bills and uh, may, you know, angry Amateur radio people who actively interfere with police and fire frequencies, or and stuff. even like the cab company that didn't renew its yeah. license for its yeah, two-way right. radio. Out of out of all of those fines, the last time the FCC looked at their their collection success rate was back in two thousand, and they just and the inspector general discovered that only twenty five percent of all of those forfeitures are actually collected upon. And then you have to keep in mind the notion that collecting on a fine doesn't mean you're going to get the whole amount that you asked for. There's a great case that was just announced by the FCC um, on today, which is Friday, October 22nd or 27th uh, for a guy in Irvington, New Jersey, um, who was running an unlicensed radio station on 107.9 FM. And back in 2014, 2015, the FCC received a complaint about this person and they went and visited his location multiple times. They spoke with them. They sent him warning letters. And in mid to late 2015, they issued this guy a $15,000 forfeiture. Okay. So you've broken the law. We've seen you breaking the law. There's a pattern pay up. Well, it turns out that instead of ignoring the fine, what this guy did was, and the FCC allows you to do this. You can submit documentation that shows you're too poor to pay it. And by the FCC's own regulations, they have to take that into consideration. So this guy submits financial documentation, like three years worth of tax returns, and says, look, I'm poor. And just, you know, today, the FCC knocked that forfeiture down to $3,800. Sometimes the forfeitures are completely uh, just abolished. Sometimes they're knocked down to denominations as low as 500 bucks. So if you are a community connected unlicensed broadcaster um, who does events and things like that, if you get a 15 or $20,000 fine, you can ignore it and you have a pretty good chance of never having to pay again uh, unless the FCC restarts the enforcement process. But that's a long convoluted multi-step thing. Or you can fess up and say, yep, I did it, but I'm poor. And then the FCC will knock it down dock the fine down to a level where you can pay it off. So if you got a $500 fine, hold a house party, you know, charge five bucks at the door, a hundred people show up, you pay the fine, you keep going. Right. So 
the FCC needs to rethink the notion of who should have access to the airwaves and how we manage the spectrum to be more accommodating of a demonstrated need that serves the public interest, but the current regulatory structure simply forbids. So, Professor John Anderson, uh, so you say that, you know, given the fact that pirate radio, unlicensed radio, is this does exist as a sort of escape valve, right? It And a lot of communities uh, and people from backgrounds uh, that, that don't have access to the airways at this point uh, simply, you know, simply put up their transmitter. They simply take them themselves because, frankly, there's there's just simply not so many barriers to doing so, and the enforcement mechanism is pretty squeaky, is pretty rusty. Um, so you say that, okay, well, there should be other paths to uh, to use of the airwaves. So, so what are you suggesting? I mean, you know, I can imagine that there's a lot of licensed broadcasters from – you know, all the way from commercial broadcasters with, with you know, in, in large markets down to, to, you know, people who've got low power FMs who say, look, you know, we've we worked really hard. We've worked really hard to get these stations on the air. We've invested mm-hmm. a lot of time, a lot of money, you know, uh, so we, we, there's value here. And, and, and to some extent, you want to protect it. And you may look askance at folks who don't respect uh, the rules and the laws and go on the air. Uh, why should I support even that that we open this up, but don't they just sort of by the fact that they they aren't willing to go through the process to get say a low power FM license, which was which was you know something which a, a thousands and thousands of people did. Wh- why should we make this space? What is it you're suggesting? Well, I guess the first thing you have to do is is you know define what it means to be a broadcaster and what your obligations are. You know, one of the reasons why it is so labor intensive and and fiscally you know, troubling in some cases to build a brand new radio station is because the way that the government regulates access to the airwaves does not acknowledge the full capacity of those airwaves. So, for example, the rules that the FCC puts down that says, here's the channels in any given market where a radio station can exist, and here's the separation that needs to exist between radio stations, both geographically and on the dial, multiple clicks away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those rules, you know, basically were created 50 years ago. And the technology to both transmit and receive analog radio signals has improved dramatically in 50 years. If we can uh, provide tighter, more consistent broadcast quality through the transmission process, and we have more selective receivers that we can listen to, I mean, things like an FM radio and an Android phone are more selective than tabletop receivers of 20 years ago, you know, on the FM dial to a certain degree. Um, if we have the technological capability to extend, expand the capacity of stations on the air and our ability to receive them, why don't we change the regulations to make for more station accommodation? And so I, I completely sympathize with people who say, I went through the process and it was hard and it was labor intensive and it was fiscally challenging, but that's not, that's not you. That's not the broadcaster's fault. That's the fault of the regulatory system putting barriers in place that basically have created spectrum scarcity artificially and created a level of buy-in necessary to build out these stations. So what I would like to see, for example, is something that has been adopted in other countries, uh, Italy in particular, where you can run 
uh, a radio station unlicensed if it's below a certain amount of power um, and only on areas where there may be fallow spectrum. Right where there's some conceivable space between uh, stations on the dial, even in a place like New York City, where I live now, uh, the FCC will say uh, the dial is full. There is no place to put more radio stations on the air. But according to the broadcast industry's latest uh, overview of the unlicensed broadcast situation in the tri-state area, there's more than a hundred pirates on the air. There's more pirate radio stations on the air in New York City right now than there are licensed stations. That in itself demonstrates the fact that this, the airwaves have more spectral capacity than the FCC will provide licenses for. But aren't these but, uh, aren't these unlicensed stations, aren't many of them interfering? Aren't they getting in the way? Some of them are to a certain degree, but then it also comes down to a question of how you define what interference is. So, for example, the public broadcaster WNYC complains a lot about stations, say, in Flatbush or Crown Heights that are making it difficult for uh, people to receive uh, their signals. Uh, my response to that is people in Flatbush and Crown Heights are not listening to WNYC. <laughs> So, so the, now why so, do you say that? I mean, so for, for someone who, who, who isn't aware of the demographics of Brooklyn. Well, Flatbush and Crown Heights are two of the largest Caribbean, uh, communities in the United States. In fact, in Flatbush, I think directly, well, in the borough of Brooklyn directly, we have the largest Haitian diaspora population in the country. Um, and so there's a critical mass of people here who need information and entertainment that is relevant to their lives. And they're not getting it from white milk toast tote bag carrying WNYC. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, so yes, uh, technically those stations may interfere. They may interfere over a few square block radius where the number of people who are actually listening to the licensed channel uh, is infinitesimal to non-existent. At the same time, I still think that if you are broadcasting, even without a license, you need to be resp a responsible steward of the spectrum. So, you know, back in 2015, when Mike O'Reilly was starting this whole campaign to demonize pirate radio, uh, he brought in all of these industry folks to have a kind of council of war to talk through how they could, you know, change policy in order to bring the hammer down on these people. And then the Democrats on the FCC, like a month later, brought me in, you know, and asked me, uh, so what's the soft underbelly of the broadcaster's argument against pirates. And I basically said, the evidence shows that the airwaves have more capacity and there are things you can do to accommodate that. Like, um, Devote particular channels in particular geographic areas of a market uh, to unlicensed broadcasting. Uh, work with unlicensed broadcasters to make sure that the equipment they're using is good, uh, that their antennas may be directional so that you're only covering the neighborhood where you know you have an audience as opposed to a unidirectional signal that goes out somewhere. Create a system of time sharing where if there are too many broadcasters who want to be on the air – uh, then there is capacity, especially in a market like the number one radio market, figure out a system by which they collaborate together and share a frequency. And I brought this up to Peter Doyle, you know, the retiring uh, audio bureau guy who's been very uh, involved in broadcast license policy. He was deep into the LPF. He even went to a barn raising that Prometheus Pro Radio Project did and helped build an LPFM station. As soon as I brought up these ideas, he was like, Oh, no, they're, they're just, no, that's just no, no, 
there's no way that's not going to happen. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, that's a policy impediment. There isn't a scientific or empirical impediment to thinking about spectrum management differently. You're simply pointing at the rules and saying these rules are inviable. My response to that is you need to question why that is. So there are options out there that exist other than treating this as some sort of scourge and adopting a war on X mentality. Um, But the current political trajectory of the country will not allow for even remotely considering this as a viable option. Yeah, that set aside notion is something I, I you just mentioned. You know, I was in New Zealand about a year ago, yes, and they right. actually have a few frequencies that are specifically set aside for unlicensed operation. When the rule is under a watt of power, um, you know, and there's a number of other rules. Uh, and the interesting thing is that you know, when it comes to sort of them interfering with each other, since since they're on set aside frequencies, they should they are not interfering with a licensed broadcaster. Um, they're just supposed to work it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, and they do and they don't. I noticed. Uh, you know, it, you hear very little news about it because, frankly, I mean, New Zealand is is not a populous con- country, and much of the country is actually fairly sparsely populated and, and sort of rural. So it's not the kind of density we see in like a New York, Chicago, L.A. kind of area. Um, but it seems like mostly it gets worked out that somebody just moves like a couple blocks another direction, and and problem solved. <laughs> because you, yeah, exactly. they're, they're limited and I don't know that the regulator ever gets much involved. Again, it's, it's hard to completely compare a, a country like New Zealand to, to the United States. Uh, but New Zealand also has a well-developed uh, commercial radio system, you know, and has had commercial radio a long time. It's and, and, and as well as college radio, well-developed college radio and community radio system. So in some ways it, it's not, not dissimilar from the United States. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we, we, that's just, you know, you're speaking crazy talk now because in the American policy context, uh, the notion has developed over time, primarily with the creation of the FCC and the Radio Act and the Telecom Act of 1996, that the public interest is best served by treating the public airwaves as a commodity uh, that develops an industry. So this is something that, you know, micro radio activists 20 years ago were trying to highlight. The way we define what the public interest is, the way by which we conceive of policies and justify them is all based around the notion of making money. Uh, we need to support the creation of an industry. That, those were those were words that you know Herbert Hoover used at the radio conferences in the 20s when they were figuring out how they were going to put a regulatory system in place, like an expert regulatory system. And that paradigm has continued to exist. And there have been, you know, the development of public radio and community radio. All that stuff happened decades, you know, after the constitutive choices were made to treat radio spectrum and television spectrum primarily as a business opportunity, primarily as an industry. And and in today's media environment or political environment, if you even bring up that notion, ah, you must be a commie, the socialism, blah, 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 blah. So we can't even begin to have meaningful discussions with empirical evidence because simply even suggesting this as an idea is somehow so far beyond the pale as to not even be funny. I mean, if you really want to deal with cat and mouse war style uh, pirate radio, go to London. You know, and London uh, pirates will will you know rip up each other's antennas if they interfere with the, with each other. Uh, and the the broadcast regulator in the UK, their agents go out and literally vandalize stations because that's the quickest way to take them off the air. We haven't had that problem yet. So the way that we conceive of unlicensed broadcasting as being a problem relative to where 
it's been in other countries is we're, we're several decades beyond thinking about radio broadcasting, its role in society and who can have access to the airwaves than pretty much the rest of the world that has developed a broadcast regulatory system. And I think even in the UK, putting aside that that sort of war on pirates that they have in places like London, um, they do have like special temporary licenses and things like yep. that, right? Where You're you absolutely can get, right. Where you can get a license for, say, a festival or for a season or, you know, and, and, and use a frequency uh, just for a little bit of time, though I think that their airwaves, their FM airwaves are significantly less crowded than the United States, if I'm not incorrect. No, I mean, if in a place like London, it sounds like a lot like New York, you know, it's a pirate, pirate, license station, pirate, 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 license station, license station, pirate, pirate, pirate. And depending on where you go in London, just like in New York or Boston or Miami, depending on what neighborhood you're in, you're going to hear different pirates. Uh, because of the diversity of the populations that exist in metropolitan areas um, and how they congregate together to create their own communities. And again, going back to the notion of cultural references, radio being something more important than what you would traditionally consider uh, white bread, middle class Americans who are all up in their phones now. And it's it's so prevalent, I think, even that there's a there's a BBC sitcom about yeah, about yeah. radio pirates. People called, just say nothing. People it's just great. do nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's I think it's I think it's on Netflix now. Even. Yeah, I think so. Um, I've seen it. I mean, it's a parody, and it certainly does oh, not yeah. paint them as the as the brightest bulbs in the uh, no. in the chain. But uh, it is is such a ubiquitous phenomenon. You know, you know, and also think about like in the UK, uh, they co opted the pirate movement to create BBC One. You know, uh, BBC back in the day didn't allow people to play rock and roll on their airwaves. So literally people built boats and put transmitters on them and went out into international waters and broadcast. Radio Caroline was one of those, one of the first pirate broadcasters that we kind of think of in the modern era. And, you know, when uh, there was a crackdown on those uh, stations, the BBC basically poached away the best talent and made them presenters on their, you know, nationwide pop music network. And now Radio Caroline's principals got a license. So they're actually building the a license station. Yeah. Uh, has gone legit. It's now, it's now in the fold. It took 50 years, <laughs> uh, but it's conceivable because the way regulators and the way the public and the way politics works there made a case for and they could understand the need for and uh, that that this is a good thing to have in our you know broadcast ecosystem. We're not there yet. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but pirate radio is not going to go away. And the FCC, even with their enhanced enforcement activities, they're just generating more paperwork. They're not actually moving in a direction of doing something that will provide a deterrent value. No one that I know that's ever been involved in or is currently involved in pirate radio is looking at the uptick in enforcement activity right now and going, Oh boy, I'm in trouble. I better watch my back or I better shut down. You know, they're kind of like, meh, it's a crap shoot, whether you get hit or not. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll take it as it comes, but in the meantime, I got work to do. And, uh, so long as that dynamic exists, this problem quote unquote will continue to exist. You're listening to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel. I'm talking with Professor John Anderson of Brooklyn College. Uh, we've been talking about unlicensed radio and pirate radio and, and the FCC's uh, enforcement actions that they're trying to tick up in this uh, current administration. And John's been sharing with me some, some of his ideas of, of, of alternatives, of how different ways in which we could conceive of the way the FM 
uh, airspace is allocated that might open up more spaces for more voices uh, so that they don't necessarily have to resort to uh, flagrantly violating the law or not so flagrantly as the case may be. Uh, you can uh, learn much more about uh, John's activities in tracking the FCC's uh, war on radio pirates or interaction with radio pirates at DIYmedia.net. And we'll have uh, references to things we talk about in the show in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Recently, Radio Survivor has made its own venture onto the airwaves. Uh, the show is now available to non-commercial radio stations, any that want to want to carry it, actually. And we've joined uh, a bunch of affiliates, or a bunch of affiliates have joined us, and we want to say hello to our new affiliates who are now carrying Radio Survivor as a radio show on the FM airwaves. We want to say hello to the Wave Farm, WGXC-FM, in Accra, in Hudson, New York, Radio Cobleskill in Cobleskill, New York, the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, WOOC is carrying the show. We have WMNB in North Adams, Massachusetts, WCOM in Chapel Hill and Carborough, North Carolina, and of course, X-Ray FM in Portland is our pilot and uh, first affiliate, and we definitely want to say hello to everyone listening to us on X-Ray FM. And uh, Internet Station WGMU at George Mason University is now carrying the show as our two part 15 legal unlicensed AM stations in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, AM 690 Underground Radio and Real Free Radio, AM 610 and AM 1620 in Polka, West Virginia. And finally, we also want to say hello to listeners on Radio Satellite 2, an internet radio station out of France. So they've all joined on board. If your station would like to start carrying the show or you know a station would like to carry the show, uh, you can learn more at radiosurvivor.com slash radio. And if you have any comments about the program, any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And so... um. Just one last sort of follow up on 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 this discussion about unlicensed broadcasters. Uh, I mean, is it possible that low power FM can still be kind of an escape valve? You know, so I mean, with the last window in 2013, we've seen you know, thousands of stations take to the air across the country. Non commercial stations that are required to be non commercial, required to be. Uh, locally owned to is supposed to do some type of uh, public service in, in community broadcasting. Could another low power FM licensing window be another escape valve and, and help bring this path to air for folks who might otherwise be uh, broadcasting unlicensedly? Yeah. Um, theoretically, yes. Uh, but in practicality, no. And uh, there's a couple reasons for that. The first one is, is that the regulations that govern low power FM radio, which would seem to be the most logical place to expand access to the airwaves for, you know, the actual public, um, contains a provision that says if you have broadcast without a license and you've been caught by the FCC, you effectively forfeit your opportunity to ever get an LPFM license. This was something that the FCC itself did not want when they initially created LPFM in 1999-2000, but the National Association of Broadcasters and National Public Radio went to Congress and got a bill that trumped the FCC's uh, rules and changed them. 
in the addition in the original uh, LPFM plan, there was a provision that said if you've been caught uh, within ten days or thirty days, if you shut your transmitter down, you can still apply. We'd still like you. It was kind of an olive branch in recognition of the fact that there had been this movement hmm. to put to put pressure on the FCC. But Congress, at the behest of commercial and public broadcasters, uh, removed that and inserted a provision that said, "Nope, if you've been a pirate." Uh, you're banned forever. Now that hasn't stopped former unlicensed broadcasters from being actively involved in the creation of legal LPFM stations. They could be DJs, for instance. They could be DJs. They can't be members of the boards of directors. They can't be names on the actual LPFM license, but it has happened where former pirates have been able to transition into the legal uh, licensed broadcast realm. But since this provision exists, then that means a lot of people who are currently breaking the law will never have the chance. The second thing we have to keep in mind is that in between the initial licensing and promulgation of LPFM, there has been multiple windows open for license stations to apply for FM translators. And these are pretty much technically identical to an LPFM station, except they can broadcast with two and a half times as much power, 250 watts instead of 100. Uh, And they can't be live and local. So there has been an entire industry, sub-industry within broadcasting that has been created that is traded in the speculation of FM spectrum to build translators. And just to give you an idea of the growth of FM translators in the United States, as far as classes of broadcast stations licensed by the FCC, the number one most licensed class of broadcast stations are FM translators. In between the introduction of LPFM and the, the latest expansion of LPFM, if you do the math on the number of licenses awarded by the FCC, for every one LPFM station that has gone on the air, for translators and a translator is basically here. a repeater station it's really. just a repeater it can only broadcast stuff another full power station or it can pull in the non-commercial band it can pull a satellite feed down and simply retransmit that and so there has been this industry particularly religious broadcasters who have invested in applying for these fm translator permits and then selling them in many cases, to commercial broadcasters, to the tune of making tens of millions of dollars on this in the last 10 plus years. So on the one hand, pirates can't be LPFM owners or licensees because Congress said so. And on the other hand, the FCC has basically given away uh, lots of potential open frequencies in markets across the country that could have been utilized by LPFM stations for these, you know, cut rate, small repeaters that are either providing you with Bible study or extending the range of uh, an existing license station. So I would like to see another LPFM window open sometime. That's not a priority for the current Republican uh, administration. And the more translators that are licensed onto the FM spectrum, the fewer potential opportunities legally for uh, LPFM stations uh, exist. So John Anderson, let's turn to another recent FCC decision. Um, they seem to be coming fast yeah, and it's going, it's going fast now. Yeah. yeah indeed. Speed is just incredible. Uh, and so uh, the thing that the FCC just decided was to get rid of a very long standing rule applied to FM radio, which is that you have to have a studio. 
Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. You think when you think radio station, you don't just think tower and waves. There's also a building where people go to make radio. Uh, that has been a requirement pretty much since the beginning of licensing. And uh, the FCC just repealed that rule. So help us understand this. Uh, why, why would the FCC do this? And, and why would the, I mean, why would the broadcast industry ask for that? Cause, cause they did. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it's money. You know, it really basically comes down to money. Um, we've seen, uh, patterns of consolidation and syndication and automation that have, you know, been inflicted upon radio over the last 20 years, especially, uh, with the passage of the telecom act in 1996, which began to remove the ownership limits on how many stations a single company could own. So back in the late nineties, when we had, you know, clear channel now, iHeartMedia uh, on its buying spree, going from a couple of stations to more than 1200, what they would do is they would go into a market. They would kind of look at all the stations that were there and they would pick, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, that they wanted to buy. They would, they would buy those stations. The licenses would be transferred and then they would cluster them. They would put all of the stations into one building. Um, and that was okay for them business wise, because it cut down on operational and facilities expenses, but it also removed in many ways, the human element from broadcasting and, and licensed broadcasters and their trade lobbyist organizations have basically said, no, no, we're still there. Like you'll often see them on Twitter and Facebook and whatever, or running PSA saying in times of natural disaster and crisis, radio is the last medium you can turn to because we're still there. We provide local service and this is great. Um, but the radio industry's kind of, you know, taken it on the chin revenue-wise uh, over the last 15 years uh, with the coming of the internet, the splintering of audiences, the splintering of advertising revenue, and the con- the conglomerates, the broadcast conglomerates like iHeartMedia, Cumulus, Entercom, CBS, Emmis, who run nationwide operations are looking for ways to cut costs because their stocks are getting hammered and they've taken on billions of dollars of debt in the consolidation orgy of 20 years ago. So they look at it and say, well, if we didn't have to have buildings where people actually made radio, that's just another logical step of consolidation, syndication, and automation. The technology exists now, thank you, internet, that allows us to simply uh, centralize programming and we can uh, connect with the emergency alert system and monitor local uh, channels in any given market and still provide things like tornado warnings and stuff. But the humans don't really need to be there. And, uh, you know, a deregulatory friendly Trumpist FCC has basically said, yeah, we we love you, industry. We'll do exactly what you would like us to do. And so uh, they voted on a party line to basically remove the rule, the requirement that Radio broadcasters actually have to have a physical local presence in uh, the communities that they serve. Well, I mean, is is that a, an antiquated rule? I mean, what what would be the argument for keeping the rule? Why why should there have to be a studio if there's all this technology that that makes it just an unnecessary overhead? Uh, because when the poop hits the spinning metal blades and the internet no longer works or your computers have been hacked or encrypted with malware, um, you still need a human being who can actually go in and flip some switches and turn on a microphone and, and say what's going on. 
right? Uh, just imagine, for example, if uh, all of the broadcasters of Puerto Rico, <laughs> this this rule had been passed like five years ago, and uh, the main broadcasters in Puerto Rico had done this, and then a hurricane comes through. Uh, there is still a dearth of internet connectivity, cell phone connectivity in Puerto Rico. So while this crisis, which is still ongoing after a month in Puerto Rico plays out, uh, imagine if there were no local people who could, you know, remotely connect with and change the programming on the radio stations. Uh, radio is effectively eating itself because one of the things that it has used as a lobbying and political counterpoint to people like me uh, who don't like the notion of consolidation and the removal of localism is, but no, no, we're still there. Like when there's a flood or a tornado or a blizzard, you can count on us because we're still in the community. We still hold fundraisers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you don't have studios where people can work out of and you can't make radio locally, then are you actually really there? So what about the argument that, that, you know, they just want to have this option, right? And that, that the market's going to take care of this so that, you know, let's say we're, uh, you know, we're from a radio station in San Juan. Uh, and I know that if I can't provide that local service, people will tune elsewhere. So, so maybe, you know, not every single station in my cluster has a studio, but I've got a studio and, and I can run five stations out of the studio and we can, we can turn on a mic and, and, and do whatever we need to do. And, you know, and the rule is just there. And if, if we were, you know, if push came to shove and the technology were to change, we would, we could exact it. But, uh, you know, the, the market demands that we have some kind of local presence. Otherwise we won't have a listenership. Isn't, you know, isn't the listener that the uh, that the radio stations are going to pay the most attention to rather than, than this FCC requirement? Sure. I mean, uh, this has already been going on through the clever facsimile of voice tracking where, you know, uh, somebody hundreds of miles away sits in a, in a studio and records the voice breaks that will play between the automated playlist song action. Uh, and it sounds live and local. Until localism is actually needed. You know, the interesting thing about the removal of the main studio rule is that the FCC and the broadcast industry both claimed that, well, if we don't have to support the physical infrastructure of a building that people work out of, we can reinvest that money into creating better and more local programming. Uh, first of all, uh, that was an argument that was made to set off the consolidation frenzy in 1996, and it never happened. And secondly, how are you going to reinvest in local programming if you're not paying human bodies in the communities to actually produce it or give them the facilities under which to produce it? Uh, in fact, there is another FCC uh, rule change that's coming down the pike in November. The FCC is essentially looking at removing – uh, the cross ownership limits. So TV stations and radio stations can buy each other and they can buy newspapers and things like that. And one of the justifications that the FCC utilizes in their initial proposal to do this, which was just published a few days ago, is, you know, we used to consider that having multiple viewpoint diversity perspectives and things on the local airwaves was a big deal. But for example, in the case of radio, that no longer exists. This is the FCC saying this. So, hmm. so since, since radio does not provide diverse perspectives within the communities they serve, then it doesn't really matter if the stations are owned by a newspaper or a television station, right? And I'm sitting there going, how can you make that claim when just a few days ago you repealed <laughs> a rule uh, that 
the justification for which you said was it will actually help create more local programming. I mean, what we're seeing here is just uh, the schizophrenic nature of policymaking. It seems like doesn't don't these two things contradict each other? But the common thread is we want to lower the costs of production uh, for the industry that is running the bulk of these stations because we see that they have fiscal uh, constraints and stressors of their own, many of which were self-made, but we want to give them quote unquote relief. If you define the public interest in the way of serving conglomerates, that is a, that, that doesn't, that's not a public interest by any stretch that I define it. I'm talking with John Anderson. He's a professor of journalism at Brooklyn College and a longtime FCC watcher. Uh, you can catch up with his weekly missives about what is going on in our media environment at DIYmedia.net. And this is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismandel. And so um, on this uh, local studio rule, uh, which has recently been uh, taken away by the FCC, um, is this something which uh, like a community radio station or a college station needs to think about or or can is it pretty much just uh, business as usual for them because it's not like a requirement that you not have a studio correct <laughs> yeah no i mean um there's no reason for non-commercial broadcasters to consider the notion of getting rid of their studios because unlike most of commercial radio non-commercial radio either has a tangible connection to its community because they're relying on, for example, listener support through pledge drives, or in the case of many community radio stations, uh, there's actual members of the public who are volunteering to produce the programming. So if a community radio station got rid of its studio, then effectively it would be cutting off access to the station for everyone who does not have the ability to create their own mini studios at home or have internet connectivity to, you know, upload or stream their content uh, to the central transmission facility, whatever that may be. Um, so it's a question of values. Like as a broadcaster, what are the things that you're actually trying to do? And for public radio and community radio, those values are defined much differently than your iHeartMedia's. So I'm not predicting i don't i don't see any reason to think that non-commercial community broadcasters are suddenly going to abandon main studios because that's one of the things that defines them as community broadcasters yeah and it seemed to me that the the main studio rule was fairly uh diluted at by this point anyway yeah totally and and you know this is also you know one step of some a trajectory that's been playing out right. since you know the republican f c c came into play actually started under Tom Wheeler. They got rid of the public file requirement right where right. It used to be for stations they'd have to keep of uh, files, of, no, actual uh, physical uh, papers yeah, physical, that you could, you, could go to, you could go to the station and say, I want to look at your public file. I want to see complaints that listeners have made. I want to see your programming breakdown during uh, political campaign seasons and things like that. The FCC's already said, nah, we'll just put all that on the internet. Um, and so, hey, I guess maybe this is the next step. If you no longer have to keep a file cabinet of evidence showing you're serving your community, why should you have a building? It seemed like the main studio role, yeah, was basically like, you know, uh, you need to have a microphone that plugs in somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> he was getting much, about yeah. basically down. Radio stations, I mean, I, I lived this. I used to be uh, a radio journalist in commercial radio, and I watched stations get clustered. And you went from having posh studios that had multiple microphones where you could bring in guests and do live performances to literally closets 
you know, where uh, there's a server rack and uh, a monitor and a mouse, and uh, you can record your programming in a production studio and just transport it over the network, plug it into the to the quote unquote station that it li- lives in a closet, and that's what you get. Well, let's talk about uh, a real station. Uh, I mentioned them earlier when I ran down our new affiliates. It's the Wave Farm WGXC in New York, and um, John, you're you're on their board of directors, correct? Yeah, I'm uh, right now. I think the vice president. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good to know this. And and uh, the station uh, and the Wave Farm as an operation just celebrated uh, its 20th anniversary. I wrote yeah. about this uh, on at Radio Survivor, so RadioSurvivor dot com. If you go to RadioSurvivor dot com slash podcast, you'll see the show notes, and you can you can read up a little bit on that. But uh, you went to the 20th anniversary. One of the, I mean, they they've had celebrations all year long, but this was a sort of culminating kind of performance that happened yes. uh, in New York city at, at a gallery. Yes. It was actually the Fridman gallery, which is in uh, Greenwich village, kind of lower Manhattan. I'm a Brooklynite, so I don't really spend a lot of time in Manhattan, but interestingly enough, that gallery had just hosted uh, Chelsea Manning's artwork. Hmm. Um, so it had gotten publicity and whatnot, but yeah, basically what they did on uh, Saturday, October 21st was they did kind of a 10-hour-long durational program event where they brought people back who had been involved with Wave Farm all the way back to when Wave Farm started as a pirate radio station in New York called Free 103.9 back in 1997. People that have been involved all the way from there to today, uh, and they gave them basically half-hour sets. So starting at noon, uh, the first uh, performer performed, and there were two uh, tables set up in the gallery um, where, you know, the performer who was on was performing, and then the other one was at the other table setting up for the next half hour. So it ran pretty seamlessly. And every half hour, you got to listen to uh, artists who use the airwaves to create interesting sonic adventures. Yeah, I listened um, in. They, they broadcast it, simulcast at WGXC, so I listened to the internet feed uh, yeah, for a good portion of the day. Their last uh, group was uh, Howardian, which um, uh, does radio art, but is also kind of a band and has a punk background. This is one of these ornaments. <laughs> yeah, I think th- I heard them. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's great. And they, they're... They're from the way back days, you know, the 90s and free one of 3.9. They were the last people to play and they didn't even play in the gallery. They moved all their equipment out onto the street (laughs) and basically did a set on the street. And people were coming by and just jamming out. And, you know, New York is weird enough as it is. So to suddenly see this kind of impromptu pop up punk show ish thing happening was great. And of course, Free 103.9 and Wave Farm being an organization that looks at transmission arts, not just as a thing that happens over the air, but something that happens on the internet. They were running a Periscope feed. So you could actually, and they've they've saved it as well. So you could actually go back and watch uh, that particular event uh, as it went down. It was an amazing experience. Uh, In some places it was challenging because a lot of these people are, you know, tweaking circuits and playing with wires and exploring the noises that come out of them. And and for many people's ears, that that sounds 
bad or it sounds, you know, uh, difficult to listen to. I was, I was in the element the whole way. It was a great, great yeah, time. I, I enjoyed listening here remotely all the way in uh, Portland, Oregon, across the country and, and yeah, free one Oh three point nine. I mean, it's, it's great that in, and it really was one of these first, as we talked about very early on in this, in this hour, when the first sort of, uh, micro broadcasters, you know, that was, that was doing unlicensed radio as an act of civil disobedience, right. Yep. To try and push, uh, the Federal Communications Commission to create low-powered um, community radio to open up the airwaves to more voices, and, and and you know as you mentioned earlier, to a large extent that movement was successful in pushing for what is now low-power FM, and it's all the more sort of interesting that that the genesis of of Free One Hundred Three Point Nine, which was in Brooklyn uh, in the late nineties, is is now a full-powered community radio station, you know, up along the Hudson river in upstate New York. Yeah. I mean, uh, while wave farm, you know, does run a radio station, the way that the principles of wave farm and the people who congregate to utilize its resources, its study space, the 30 acres that it has just outside of Acre, uh, for audio experimentation, look at it as, uh, an element of art, and uh, they look at WGXE, their full power radio station, as an kind of a, it, it, it serves two purposes. One purpose is, is to provide community access to the airwaves. So in that way, it's very much like uh, your traditional community radio stations that have been set up over the last 40 plus years in the United States. But it also has uh, in its DNA uh, this commitment to transmission arts, which is how do we manipulate uh, spectrum? How do we manipulate sound uh, to do interesting experimental and creative things? And uh, they've been able to actually, you know, balance that on this station uh, that serves, you know, three counties in upstate New York. Uh, they also have a part 15 you know, AM radio station on the property of Wayfarm. So legal, uh, unlicensed, legal, but- legal and unlicensed, but it's totally above board. And they bring in artists. They provide them with residencies. You can go and spend, you know, a, a couple of weeks, a month uh, living in their space um, and playing with nature and uh, twiddling knobs and soldering things together and, and figuring out uh, new ways to use the airwaves and just to use sound in general uh, to be creative and expressive. It's a, there's nothing like it. I mean, at least in the United States, there's there's nothing like it. And and that was also in the DNA of Free 103.9 back in Williamsburg. Yeah, it wasn't a you know it it definitely has a punk ethos to it, right? But it it wasn't a you know Christian Slater pump up the volume, Happy Harry hard on kind of right kind of scene, so to speak. Um, it's it's wonderful. I, I try to get up there whenever I can, just because I like nature, and we don't have a lot of that around here. But it's just great to go up there, and they have a whole library of books on radio and transmission art, and they will access. You can just open up uh, a channel on their live stream and do interesting, crazy, fun stuff. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's great, and the fact that they've been able to not only sustain it but kind of evolve it into this meta organization that does all these really cool things over 20 years is, is an amazing accomplishment. I don't, sometimes I don't even know why I'm part of it. Like I'm just a, I'm just a punk pirate FCC policy journalism guy. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> plenty of qualification to me. But it's, it's so good. I love it so much. People can learn more at wavefarm.org. Professor John Anderson, 
Thank you so much for joining us for another hour of Radio Survivor. Really appreciate it. Uh, go to your website at DIYmedia.net. Uh, Thanks again, John. Anytime, Paul. And this is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismandel. We'll be back in a week with more. Eric Klein, my co-host, will be joining me. Uh, then you can learn more about anything we've talked about at our website, radiosurvivor.com. Thank you so much for spending an hour of your time with us. We really appreciate it, and we'll be talking with you again. 